Well, good morning. I want to welcome everyone here to Gospel of Grace Fellowship. Thank you for the lovely worship. If you can't preach after that, there's something wrong with you, right? So with that, I have the honor and the privilege to be talking about the resurrection today. And what I want to do today is I want to focus on how Christ's empty tomb really does furnish proof that he was raised from the dead. Now, today we're going to find out that all the opponents to Christianity ever had to do to disprove Christianity was produce the body of Christ, but they can never do so, or to show that he was still in the tomb. And we're going to see today that this is all the more persuasive evidence when we consider the fact that in the year 33 AD, everyone knew both the believer and the unbeliever where Christ's tomb was. It was in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, but it was indeed empty. So I pray today for my dear brothers and sisters that the message would solidify in your minds that your faith in Christ is indeed well-placed. But if there's anyone here or listening today that does not know Christ, today would be your day. Today would be your day to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ because you would see the truth of the resurrection. You know, one theologian famously said regarding the significance of the resurrection, he said, the resurrection is much like the sun. It's not that you can look directly at it, but only in light of it can you see all other things. That indeed is how significant the resurrection really is. Now, I want to begin today by building a case that Christ has been raised from the dead. And I'm going to do so by proving to you that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would not only be raised from the dead, but that he would be raised on the third day. But I'm also going to show you that Jesus Christ himself is the only person in history that predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then pulled it off. Now, let's begin with the Old Testament, but before I have us turn to the Old Testament passages, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, because there, Paul claims that the Old Testament foretold of Christ's resurrection. So again, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now, as you're turning again to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, I want you to remember that Paul had to deal with the Corinthian church that denied the bodily resurrection. Bob is going to be coming to that in his studies through 1 Corinthians. So listen to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now notice Paul's contention in verse 4, Christ was to be raised on the third day, and it was according to the Scriptures. Well, what Scriptures was Paul referring to? Well, he was referring to the Old Testament, not the New And so we have to ask ourselves precisely where is it in the Old Testament that it was predicted the Messiah would be raised and raised on the third day. Well, I'm going to show you five different prophecies. But before we turn to them, and by the way, keep your Bibles handy. I'll have you be turning to different passages just on this slide. I want you to remember that I've talked about this prior. There are different types of prophecies. There are what we call direct prophecies, which are very simple. This is that. The Messiah would not see decay is a good example, written a thousand years prior to Christ, Psalm 16.10. But there are other types of prophecies called typological prophecies, where there is a pattern that is set, a type in the Old Testament, that finds its ultimate fulfillment 
in the New Testament in Christ. And you're going to see three of those typological prophecies. In fact, let's start with the first one. This is Genesis 22, 1 through 5. Now, because we studied this passage last week at Lamb Selection Day, I will not have you turn to it. But for those of you that weren't there, here was the call by God to Abraham that he should sacrifice his son, his only son. And I want you to remember that Abraham traveled for three days to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. So for Abraham, his own son, his only son, it's a loaded term, was dead in his mind for three days. How long was God's only son dead in the grave for? For three days. And so there is a typology, a foreshadowing of the third day resurrection of Christ. Now, you might say, hey, Eric, you seem to be reading into that. Well, I'll show you that the writers of the New Testament thought that. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, and I'll show you the writer of Hebrews believed that there was typology in Abraham's sacrifice of his son. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. Please turn your Bibles there. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Now, as you're turning there, remember Hebrews 11 is often called the hall of fame of faith. Why? Because there you see the deeds of the saints because they believe they act on it. And here Abraham was no different. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Stop there. Only begotten son. Sound familiar? Well, God has an only begotten son. Aha, there's typology. Notice verse 18. It was he to whom it was said. Now, here's Genesis 21, 12. In Isaac, your descendants, literally, your seed shall be called. Stop there. Isaac dies, the promises of God are done. We don't celebrate Easter today. But Abraham's commanded to sacrifice his son. What is he going to do? Verse 19, regarding Abraham, it said, He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. The term type there in Greek is the term that we have for parable. Isaac is a parable meaning a symbol pointing to a greater reality that just as for all intents and purposes, he was as good as dead for three days in the mind of his father. One day, the only son of God would be dead in the ground for three days. Typology, not so says just Eric Dalma, so says the writer of Hebrews. Now, let's turn to another one here. We're on a roll. Let's go to Psalm 1610. Turn your Bibles there, if you will. Psalm 1610. This was written... 1,000 years prior to the birth of Christ. It was written by David. As you're turning to Psalm 1610, I'm going to prove to you later in this message that when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, Peter's claim is that when David wrote this, 1,000 years prior to the birth of Christ, that David knew that this passage was not about himself, but first and foremost, it was about the Messiah. Notice what David prophesied, Psalm 1610. David said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, the idea that the Holy One would not undergo decay, again, is ultimately appropriated to the Messiah, meaning he's going to have to be raised from the dead. Now, you might ask yourself in that text, where does it demand a third-day resurrection? Well, I think that may be implied. 
Think of this rationally. If, in fact, the Messiah is not going to undergo decay, well, we have to ask ourselves, when did the Jews believe official decay began? And I think there's some evidence that they believe decay started after the third day or on the fourth day. And if that's true, then it was necessary for the Messiah to be raised when? On the third day, prior to official decay beginning. Now, one piece of evidence I would cite for that is, do you remember when Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead in John 11? In John eleven thirty nine, 39, Jesus commands Lazarus' stone to be rolled away, but Martha, Lazarus' sister, says, Lord, don't roll away the stone. There's going to be a tremendous stench. And she literally says, recorded in the Greek, by John, he's a four-dayer. Now, I think maybe that might imply that if you were dead in the ground for four days, official decay began. Therefore, if the Messiah was not to undergo decay, he had to be raised on the third day. It certainly proves the resurrection. It was being predicted a thousand years in advance, perhaps implicitly also a third-day resurrection. Now, that's a direct prophecy. Let's turn to another one. Let's turn to Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10. Now, you don't have to turn your Bibles there. I think most of you are familiar with Isaiah 53, but let me read it to you, and you're going to see this is a direct prophecy written 715 years prior to the birth of Christ. Isaiah 53.10, again, all about the suffering servant who will die for our sins, the Messiah. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Notice that phrase, his days would be prolonged. The term in Hebrew there, yarach, means just that. It means to extend or to prolong. In this case, it's the days of the suffering servant. Well, if the suffering servant is to die for our sins, and he certainly is in Isaiah 53, how are his days going to be prolonged? He's going to have to be raised from the dead. Written 715 years prior to the birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Now, let's come to another typological prophecy, Hosea 6, 1 through 2. Please turn your Bibles there. Hosea 6, verses 1 through 2. Now remember, Hosea was dealing with the people of Israel at God's command who were engaged in spiritual idolatry. They were acting like a bunch of spiritual harlots going after other gods. But in some places, like in Hosea 6, 1 through 2, that you're turning to, you do see, despite their sin, God promises if they would return, repent, and believe that he would restore them. In fact, not only would he restore them, he would raise them up on the third day. It's the only passage in the entire Old Testament in which there's a speaking of being raised on the third day. Notice what it says, Hosea 6, 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord. By the way, that's synonymous with repentance, the idea of shuv, return. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Verse 2, it says, he will revive us after two days, He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Now, as I read that, I know you're saying, hey, wait a minute, Eric, that is directed initially to Israel, and you're right. You're an astute reader. And you're saying, well, how does he apply that then, or how do I apply it to the Messiah? Well, here's what I want you to learn. 
What we've been learning in the book of Matthew is Jesus ends up being the faithful son that Israel never was. That's what we learned in the first four chapters of Matthew. Remember, Israel was called called God's firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. But when they went into the wilderness for 40 years, they failed because of their sin and rebellion. Jesus goes into the wilderness for how long? For 40 days. He succeeds. Why? He's the faithful son. And because he's the faithful son, it was necessary, therefore, that he would be raised on the third day. Now, I'll show you one more passage that's typological in the third day imagery. We know that because Jesus says so in Matthew 12, 40, and that's Jonah 1, 17. Remember, Jonah, that rascal, he didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites. He didn't want to preach that they could repent and be forgiven. But what happened? Well, he was gobbled up for all intents and purposes by a big fish. And what's unique about that? Well, he was dead in the belly of the fish for three days, and yet he lived. And so Jesus borrows from that in Matthew 12, 40. Jesus says this, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus saw this typology and knew that he being the prophet par excellence would be raised on the third day. Brothers and sisters, it is clear that the Old Testament had some direct prophecies of the resurrection of the Messiah, but there was also a typology going on of a third-day resurrection. Now, what I want to do is fast forward to Jesus. Do you know Jesus himself predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection? In fact, we're going to see that here in Matthew 17, where he is in Galilee with his disciples. Matthew 17, 22 through 23, it says, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Dear ones, notice in red, Jesus here is predicting, pull up my pointer, his own resurrection on the third day. Now, what is he borrowing from? Well, of course, he's God. He knows the future, but he's also borrowing from the Old Testament, that he is going to be the only son like Isaac raised on the third day that he is going to be the faithful son Israel never was in Hosea 6, 1 through 2. He's going to be raised on the third day. That he's the prophet par excellence that Jonah even never was. He's going to be raised on the third day. Now, it's very significant that Jesus here is predicting his own resurrection. He is the only person in all of human history that ever predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and then pulled it off. Buddha never did. Muhammad never did. Joseph Smith never did. They're all in the ground rotting it up, but not Jesus. Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he pulled it off. Now, I want you to think about this. It's very important in our apologetic task. Apologetics means not that we're apologizing, but that we're giving a rational defense. And it's very important when we give a rational defense that we realize even the enemies of Christ knew that he had predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Now, this is significant because it's going to explain why there's a Roman guard placed in front of his tomb, because they knew that he had predicted his own resurrection. In fact, we see that here in Matthew chapter 27. As I'm going to show you this passage, you have the leadership of Israel 
asking Pilate to put a guard in front of the tomb. Listen to what they say to him. Matthew 27, 63 through 64. They said, sir, this is to Pilate. They're saying this. We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice in red here, the leadership of Israel knew that he had predicted his own resurrection. They knew that. And so this explains then why, in verse 64, notice, they're going to ask that the grave be made secure. How? Well, there's going to be a Roman guard put there. Now, here's the problem that this poses to the enemies of the gospel. When the resurrection occurs, what's the cover story? Well, the disciples stole the body. How do they do that with a Roman guard? How do you steal a body when there's a Roman guard there? I want you to consider three facts when considering that the disciples could steal the body. Number one, it was illegal for Roman guards to fall asleep on guard duty. In fact, they could incur, according to Acts 12, 19, the death penalty. Remember in Acts chapter 12, Peter ends up escaping by the angel of the Lord, and two of the sentries that were assumed to have fallen asleep, Herod has them put to death. You did not want to fall asleep on guard duty if you're a Roman soldier. Now, let's ask ourselves number two, big problem. Even if the guards fell asleep, and I'll talk about the number of them in just a moment, Do you think that the disciples are going to be able to move a 4,000-pound stone up an incline and not wake up one of the guards? If you believe that, you have more faith than I do in believing in the resurrection. This stone was very heavy. As the old saying goes, it would take two men and a boy to move that thing. And it's going to make a lot of noise. It was stone. And yet none of the guards guarding the tomb ever woke up? Wow. If you believe that, again, you have more faith than I do in believing in the resurrection of Christ. And again, I think what makes much more sense is that fearing the death penalty, the soldiers never did fall asleep. They never did. And so we all have to ask, why is Jesus' tomb empty? You see, the tomb being empty is the biggest problem that the opponents to Christianity ultimately have. Because everyone agreed, both the believers and the unbelievers, in 33 A.D., that the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. The only question that we have to wrestle with is why. Now, I'm going to show you that the empty tomb is a major feature of the Apostle Peter's preaching at Pentecost. Listen to what he does with the empty tomb and how important the empty tomb is as evidence of Christ's resurrection. Here's Peter preaching at Pentecost, Acts 2, 29 through 32. Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." Dear ones, notice here in red, I'm pointing to it on the screen, that's Psalm 1610, written a thousand years prior to the birth of Christ by David. And don't miss it, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is contending 
that David knew, notice the term knew, that this was about the Christ, that he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that it was about the Messiah and not himself. Now, this is all the more powerful when we consider the fact that as Peter is preaching this message, everyone knew where David's tomb was. Notice in the underlying section, his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, if you ever gone to Israel and you spent any time around Jerusalem, they'll say, yeah, that's where David's tomb is. Now, during the Crusades at some point, his body was stolen, they believe, but not in 33 AD. His body was still in there. So think of the power. Peter is preaching, saying, hey, David is still in the tomb. Therefore, Psalm 1610 can't apply to him. He is decaying. Now, ultimately, he will overcome the grave because he belongs to Christ. But initially, he underwent decay. In fact, his tomb's over there. All the opponents of Christianity had to do to say, Christianity is over, and it's not true. All they had to do was say, well, yeah, Jesus' body's over there. They just had to say, well, yeah, he's still in the tomb too, but they never could do that. They never could do that because the tomb is empty. The tomb being empty is a stubborn fact for all the world to wrestle with. All agreed, both the unbelieving Jews and the Jews who did believe that the tomb was empty. All we have to ask is, why is it empty? And for me and my house, we believe that it's obvious he was raised from the dead. So the empty tomb was agreed upon by both the believers and the unbelievers. Now, what I'm going to show you here in Matthew 28 is a section of Scripture where as the women who are the first to come to the empty tomb, this is the two Marys, they are going to go tell the disciples to meet the Lord in Galilee. In the resurrected state, Jesus will meet them in Galilee. But as they're doing that, the soldiers who are guarding the tomb they're going to report back their problem with an empty tomb to the leadership of Israel. And so that's where we pick it up here, Matthew 28, 11 through 13. It says, Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while... We were asleep. Now, dear ones, notice in red, here is the cover story. The cover story is that the disciples stole the body at night while these fellows slept. Now, here's one of the big problems with that. More than likely, the guard that was around Jesus' tomb consisted of at least eight men. At least. I believe it was probably 16. Now, why do I say that? Well, in the Roman army, a squad was four men. But a tent group would often do guard duty together, which would consist of eight men, two four-man squads. However, in high-profile cases like in Acts chapter 12, they would use two tent groups, four squads, or two eight-man teams, which would be 16 men. Sixteen's a lot of soldiers. Not one of them could stay awake under the threat of the death penalty. And again, how heavy was the stone that was in front of Jesus' tomb? Probably two tons. And yes, with momentum, it would be easy to roll in place because it would roll in a slot and the slot would be like a V and it would roll downhill in front of the tomb's opening. But if you had to move that, you were going uphill. Can you imagine the grunting and the noise associated with moving that stone? I uh, get a little winded when I move the groceries from the, the truck to the 
the house, I make a little bit of racket, right? You can imagine moving a 4,000-pound stone and you don't wake up? Any of the, the soldiers? Is it really plausible? No, it's not plausible. Dear ones, what makes far more sense is the reason the tomb is empty is because Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. Now, I want you to see how this story where the disciples came and stole him by night poses a significant problem for the soldiers. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 28, 14 through 15. We're just going to build off of these verses that you see here. Why is it a problem? Again, those soldiers are in big trouble. If they fell asleep, they can be put to death. And so there's going to be a cover for them. And listen to what is stated by the leadership of Israel. Matthew 28, 14 through 15. Matthew 28, 14 through 15. This is the leadership of Israel covering for the soldiers. They say to the soldiers, the leadership of Israel, and if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they, the soldiers, notice verse 15, they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. I believe the book of Matthew is probably written sometime in the 50s or 60s A.D. Now, I want you to think about that. Ever since 33 A.D., when Christ was raised, the cover story is the soldiers were asleep, the disciples steal the body, and that the soldiers are paid off. And that was the story to this day. So in other words, that was for at least three decades, the story. Now, I'm going to show you through an unbeliever's writing called the Dialogue with Trypho between Justin Martyr and Trypho, dated in the year 150 AD, that this is the same story. So what I'm about to show you is not biblical. It's a secular writing. It's dated to 150 AD, and it is a dialogue between an unbelieving Jew named Trypho and a believer named Justin Martyr, and they debate back and forth. Well, here you're going to see Trypho, the unbelieving Jew, unwittingly, corroborate just what Matthew has just said, that the cover story is the disciple stole the body. That's why the tomb was empty. Listen to what Trypho, the unbelieving Jew, said. Again, 150 AD, 100 years about after Matthew was written. Trypho, the unbelieving Jew, said this in his writing. He said, quote, You, and that's really referring to all Christians, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless And lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb, where he was laid when unfastened from the cross, and now deceived men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Now, let me stop here for just a moment. A quick aside, notice how an unbelieving Jew in the year 150 AD corroborates the major tenets of the Bible. First of all, Jesus existed. Anyone who says Jesus is a figment of our imagination doesn't know history. Jesus is testified by Tacitus, Flavius Josephus, Pliny the Younger. Here we have Trypho, an unbelieving Jew. No, Jesus was a historical figure. Notice also that the claim was that he was from Galilee. Yes, that's exactly what Trypho lays out, that he was crucified that there was an implied resurrection. Notice that he was risen and that he ascended to heaven. Those are the basic claims of the gospel in the Bible, all seen through an unregenerate man. Now, he denies it, but those are the claims. But notice in red, the claim is that the disciples stole him by night. 
That's the same story now in 150 AD. But you know, about 900 years later, during the Middle Ages, the story of the Jews changes. There's a writing called Toledoth Yeshua. Toledoth means generation. Yeshua is, of course, Jesus, the generation of Jesus. And what this writing is, is unbelieving Jews wanted to put together an alternate biography to slander Christ. So around 1000 AD, in Toledoth Yeshua, they claim in this writing that Jesus' body was stolen, this time not by the disciples, but by a gardener. Now, why is that important? Well, ask any detective, if you had two groups of witnesses that he see the same event, which group of witnesses is telling the truth? The one that never wavers in their story. The one who is consistent. If the group keeps changing their story, they're not to be believed. So I want you to consider that at least till 150 AD, the story is, yes, the disciples stole the body. But a thousand years later, all of a sudden, the unbelieving Jews' story changes. Well, it wasn't the disciples. It was the gardener who did it. So the gardener was able to take on the 16 Roman guards and move the stone uphill without making enough noise to wake up the soldiers. Again, brothers and sisters, what takes more faith? We all know that the tomb is empty. What makes more sense? Is the tomb empty because someone stole the body, defeated the Roman guard somehow, or that he was really bodily raised from the dead? Dear ones, let me give you a summary here of the powerful evidence thus far. Six points. Number one, no one disputed the empty tomb. Both the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews all agreed the tomb is empty. If if the tomb was not empty, at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when he says, hey, David's tomb is over there and he's in it, they simply would have said, well, Jesus is in his tomb as well, and Christianity's done. But they couldn't do it. Second point. Very important, no one disputed the location of the tomb. In other words, it wasn't as if, well, they were confused, the tomb was over here, but the Christians know it was over here. No, everyone agreed Jesus was laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Why is that important? Joseph of Arimathea was on the council of the leadership of the Jews. This was absolutely a scandal that he would demonstrate his faith in Jesus of Nazareth by giving his tomb away. And see, we in America, we yawn at the idea of a tomb because we just think of grave plots that aren't aren't that expensive relatively. But giving your tomb away as a Jew in the first century was exceedingly expensive, especially the kind of tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had. It would arrival the cost of a new home. And once you placed another family in it, you could never use it for your own family because the Jews buried according to family. So when Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb to Jesus, it was gone forever. It always belonged to him, and it could never come back to Joseph of Arimathea. They all knew where it was, and yet that tomb was empty. Dear ones, consider this. No one was ever arrested for grave robbing. The disciples are accused of robbing graves, and yet they're not arrested for robbing graves. I'm going to prove to you that in 33 AD, in the first century, it was against the law to do grave robbing. In fact, it was a capital offense as well. So why are none of the disciples ever put to death for robbing the grave? They're accused of it, but they're never prosecuted for it. And I think the reason they're not prosecuted for it 
is because the leadership of Israel knew if they went to prosecute and they had to bring forward witnesses, all of a sudden the soldiers have to answer, hey, by the way, how did you fall asleep while they're rolling that big stone uphill? And they're in trouble too. So the unbelieving Jews and the leadership of Israel knew that that was a case they didn't want to try to bring to court. And so the accusation of grave robbing went forth, but not the prosecution, which shows it wasn't genuine. It never was genuine. Number four, the unbelieving Jews' story changes. Oh, yes, it's consistent validating the Bible because Matthew says up to this day, at least 60 AD, the story was the disciples stole the body. But a thousand years later, in the medieval period, all of a sudden it's not the disciples, it's the gardener. Again, the detective says you got two groups of witnesses. Who's telling the truth? The people's story that doesn't change. That's who's telling the truth. And it's the biblical eyewitnesses, the apostles, whose words are encapsulated in Scripture, the story isn't changing. We have a faith once and for all handed down to the saints. Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. Number five, do 500 people hallucinate? Remember, according to 1 Corinthians 15.8, Jesus was not just seen by the apostles, but by over 500 brethren at one time. Now, don't shoot the messenger for this, but back then they probably counted only the men. So that meant more than likely there were women and children associated with this. Jesus could have been seen publicly in his resurrected body by over a 1,000 people. But let's just go with 500. 500 people saw Jesus publicly in his resurrected body. Now, I mention this one because in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, there was a new theory put forward after the time that psychology became very popular, and that was the hallucination theory. The theory went like this. It was like, well, the disciples, it's not that they're lying. It's just they wanted Jesus to be raised so bad that they started to hallucinate. The problem with that theory is 500 people don't all hallucinate the same thing. Hallucinations are not catchy. In fact, I gave this message some years ago. I mentioned the fact that the only time in history that over 500 people had the same hallucination, was probably at Woodstock. Are you with me? And that was not a religious experience, right? They don't all hallucinate the same thing. That's the point. No, they saw the bodily resurrected Christ. Number six, why didn't anyone bother to look? There is not one mention of anyone looking for the body of Christ. It's as if all people in that time period were content with the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty. Now, this is a point that a man makes named Frank Morrison who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone. Now, this man, his original name, his pseudonym, his writing name is Frank Morrison. He was born in 1881 in England. His original name was Albert Henry Ross. In 1930, he set out to disprove Christianity. He was going to prove that the resurrection never happened. And so he got all the sources he could get the Bible and commentaries and secular sources, and he just went hog wild. In fact, the original name of his book was going to be, quote, Jesus, the last phase, because he was going to phase out Jesus by disproving the resurrection. Do you know this Frank Morrison, again, ultimately known as Albert Henry Ross, that was his original name. Instead of disproving the resurrection, he ended up convincing himself that the resurrection certainly happened. After he objectively looked at the evidence, he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone, proving that Christ was bodily raised from the dead. And one of the points he makes here, 
in his book is no one bothered to look. Listen to what Frank Morrison said. He said, quote, It is impossible to read the records of the period, and again, he's talking around 33 AD in the first century, without profoundly impressed by the way in which, for friend and foe alike, the tomb of Jesus sinks into utter and undisturbed oblivion. No one in later years seems to have gone to Joseph's garden, again, that's Joseph Arimathea, and looking at the rock-hewn cave to have said, this is the place where the Lord is buried, unquote. In other words, what he's rightly pointing out is that all they had to do to disprove the resurrection of Christ is say, hey, he was actually in this tomb, but no one could ever do it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the only person ever who ever predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he pulled it off. Therefore, he deserves all of our worship. Now, the last thing I want to show you as far as evidence is something called the Nazareth Stone. This was discovered in the 19th century in Nazareth, hence the Nazareth Stone. But it's dated till 41 AD, and I believe it was written uh, by the Emperor Claudius. Now, the Emperor Claudius here is going to ban the destroying or the removal of people from tombs or grave robbing. So what I'm going to do is read it to you, and I'll explain the significance of that. So again, this is dated to 41 AD. Now remember, when was Jesus raised from the dead? 33 AD. Listen to what Claudius the emperor said in this inscription. It's in Koine Greek, common Greek. It says this, an edict of Caesar. It pleases me that graves and tombs, whoever has made them as a religious act for forebears or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if any should show that someone has either destroyed or in any other way cast out those buried here or has with evil deception removed them to other places in injustice for those buried here or has removed the monument or the stones, in such a case I command that there be a trial as if pertaining to matters of the gods for the benefit of the religious duty of men. For it shall very much be required to honor those who have been buried let no one move them for any cause. But if, if someone does not comply, it is my will, this is the emperor of Rome, that he suffer capital punishment on a charge of robbing tombs, unquote. Now, the reason I mention this is I believe the capital offense for robbing tombs began in 46 BC under Julius Caesar. What this Nazareth stone shows us is that in the year 41 AD, it was still a capital offense. Why is that important? Because Christ resurrections in between. Meaning when Christ was raised from the dead and his tomb was found empty, if you were caught robbing a tomb, you would get the death penalty. Again, that's the accusation against the disciples. Do any disciples or any of them convicted of grave robbing and put to death for that? Not one. Oh, yes, they have different martyrs' death, but not for grave robbing. Not one of them. Why is that important? because it proves that the leadership of Israel knew that their story wasn't true. Truth be told, they knew that the disciples didn't steal the body. And again, if they brought that to court, they would lose. The real reason Jesus Christ's tomb was empty is because he was bodily raised from the dead. Now, that we've just proven that Christ was bodily raised from the dead, what I want to do is begin to talk about the significance of Christ's resurrection. You know, Christ's resurrection proves all of his claims. It proves that when he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. It proves that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and everyone must answer ultimately to him. In fact, that's the point that Paul makes. The apostle who saw Jesus Christ bodily raised from the dead first on the road to Damascus. But here, the apostle Paul is preaching the resurrected Christ at the Oropagos in Athens, Acts 17, 30 through 31. Paul says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Does everyone see in red for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of Christ is proof to all men. Proof that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Now, what should every single person do in light of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead? Notice Paul says that everyone everywhere should repent. The term repent there has to do with a change of mind and a change of direction in your life. The idea is that every single human being is bent on going towards idolatry. That's our default position. We go towards false religion and idolatry. Repentance is the idea of turning from that, turning from unbelief, sin, self, the world, and the devil, and turning to God on his terms, which is faith in Christ. That's what Paul was preaching. So perhaps there are some here or some listening that have never trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Today could be your day. Let me explain who Jesus is. Jesus existed as the Son of God for all eternity. At a point in history, he humbled himself through the virgin birth and he became a man. Jesus, the Messiah, was truly God and truly man in one person. Truly God in order to save us. Truly man in order to represent us. And it's this Jesus who lived the perfect life so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. A righteousness that we don't have on our own. But this Jesus didn't just live the perfect life or do mighty miracles, which he certainly did, or teach the gospel and the word of God. He certainly did all those things, but he also went to a cross. And on that cross, he died a substitutionary death where Jesus the just would take upon himself the full measure of God's wrath for us who believe, and he would pay it off. This is stated in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, The Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The proof that Jesus atoned for our sins by dying on the cross is proven by the fact that on the third day he was bodily raised from the dead. This Jesus not only was bodily raised from the dead, but he ascended into the heavens where he's currently seated at the right hand of God. From where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people and a resurrection, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do? Paul gives the answer here. The Lord Jesus gives the same answer in Mark 1.15. We are to repent and to believe the gospel. Perhaps you're a Buddhist or perhaps you're an atheist or a Hindu. That's idolatry. Turn from that. Whatever other religion you have, turn from those things. Turn from unbelief and turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you will trust upon this Jesus who was raised from the dead, By the authority of Scripture, I declare to you, you'll have the forgiveness of sins, and you'll one day have a resurrected body as well. That's for you who don't believe. Today is the day. 
Today is the day to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to speak to my dear brothers and sisters. I know the vast majority of of you in here believe. I'm preaching to the choir. I want to talk about what the resurrection means to us today. It means that just as Christ overcame the grave, one day we're guaranteed to as well. Paul, or excuse me, Bob talked about this as he was talking about Paul's writings in Acts. He talked about the resurrection today. Bob was talking about the significance that in every sermon ever given in the book of Acts, the resurrection is given. Why? Because the resurrection is the foundation of what we believe. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, you and I are going to be raised as well. He was the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning one day the rest of us would follow. So just as I began with 1 Corinthians 15, let me end there. 1 Corinthians 15, notice what Paul says in verses 54 through 55 regarding the resurrection body. He says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, so the perishable is this body, and the imperishable is the resurrection body. He says, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Now here's Isaiah 25, 8, death is swallowed up in victory. Now here's Hosea 13, 14, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, Jones, I want to focus here for just a moment on the passages that Paul cites. Notice he first cites Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 25, 8. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Do you know that was written 700 years prior to the coming of Christ? That one day in this future Messiah, death would be swallowed up forevermore. That's exciting. In the work of Christ, that is fulfilled. Notice also he cites Hosea 13, 14. Notice death here is being personified. And there's a mockery by God. Death, where is your victory? What is the implied answer of that rhetorical question? It has no victory. It has no victory. It's done. Notice the next question. Oh, death, where is your sting? The rhetorical answer demands, the rhetorical question demands the answer. There is no sting not for those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to us, death is a formidable thing. Uh, Woody Allen once famously said some years ago, he says, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's the way it, uh, it is for us as humans. Death is a fearsome thing. But that's precisely why God mocks it on our behalf, because he's overcome the grave for us. Dear ones, because the Lord Jesus overcame the grave, You who have trusted in him, you'll overcome the grave as well. You certainly will. Now, again, for those that may not believe today, I pray that you would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a famous saying that says that the stone in front of Jesus' tomb was not rolled away to keep Jesus in, for no tomb nor no stone could ever contain him. But the stone was rolled away so that you and I could look in and say, he's not there. He's risen. And my prayer is that if you don't believe, today would be the day that the Lord removes the stone for you. Christ is raised from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the promises and the proof and the evidence that you have in your scriptures. You don't ask us to believe in nonsense or fairy tales or Easter bunnies, but to believe in cold, sober truth. We thank you for these facts, Lord, that we can Put our lives in your hands, knowing that you are the one who gives forgiveness of sins, the assurance of everlasting life, and the promise of a glorious kingdom. I pray if anyone doesn't believe, today would be their day. Roll away the stone for them, Lord. 
Help them to know that your son has been raised from the dead. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters as difficult times come in our nation and around the world that you'd give them perseverance. Help these truths to settle in their minds so they may know that they may know, even on the darkest days of life, that the promises in Christ are all true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.